Well, as you recall, we began what could be seen as a five-part series on 1 Timothy 4.1, but in, from one point of view. But, uh, you know, I, I, to just recall why we're doing what we're doing, I ran across this phrase about the latter times, this reference to the latter times in 1 Timothy 4.1. That led me to want to explain that rather than just pass over it. And that led me into looking at uh, how it's equivalent to the last days and then looking at what are these the last days of? Well, they're the last days of this age and there's this age and the age to come and we're in the last days of this age. And then when you start to look at that, you see that this kingdom concept is closely tied to the last days of this age and the age to come. And so we're going to do some biblical theology that we began last week where you're looking through these for these themes in the Bible and we're trying to get a sort of a eschatological framework in our minds so that when we run across a statement like the latter times, we know where to put it in our thinking. We know where to slot it in the overall plan of redemption revealed in the Bible. Where, where, what's Paul talking about as the latter times? How does it fit into God's larger scheme as it's revealed in Scripture? So that's what we began last week in part one of our study of the kingdom of God. And this week we're going to begin part two of that study and uh, <clears throat> we looked somewhat at the concept last week and how the, preaching the gospel was considered preaching the kingdom of God. It was so closely tied together conceptually. And this week we're going to look at how the kingdom of God is here now, but not yet fully come. The, the kingdom of God concept is found throughout scripture, but there's a focus that you began to see in the Old Testament uh, a narrowing focus on the kingdom of God being manifested in a particular way through the Messiah who is to come as the king who will reign forever. And then as you move into the New Testament, you see that that, that coming of the Messiah was actually a two-part coming, a two-stage thing, where in his first coming, he brings the kingdom of God as a spiritual kingdom now that looks forward to the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom promises in the future, ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth. And so, as you come into the New Testament, you see that the fulfillment of these messianic prophecies happened in a way that was sort of unexpected, in this sort of two-stage manner. And most of us are familiar with that, but we're going to trace this a little bit. Now, we're not going to look at every passage we could look at, uh, when we trace these themes, I'm, I'm simply looking at enough text to demonstrate for you the reality of what I'm saying, the truthfulness of what I'm saying and presenting from my point of view. And it, about some of this, as you'll see, uh, we can only guess. And if I'm guessing at something, I'm going to tell you that. Uh, for example, I don't think that the Bible clearly says when this age began. There's not a passage I know of in Scripture that says this age began at X time. I'll explain to you why I think it began with the first Adam and the fall and the, and the subsequent promise of salvation. And that that's tied into Jesus being called the second Adam. And if he's the one who brought in the last days of this age and will ultimately bring in the age to come as the second Adam, it seems to me it's probably a safe bet that this age began with the first Adam. right? Uh, but that's just a guess, right? Uh, more on that next week. I think it's a pretty good guess, but... But I don't know for sure. All I know is that this age was around before Jesus came the first time and uh, ushered in the last days of this age. However long it was here, before then the Bible doesn't make clear in any particular text. So sometimes when you're doing this sort of trying to understand biblical theology, you're, you're looking at broader themes sometimes and saying, how does this make sense thematically based on how the Bible unfolds the story of redemption? The, history of redemption. And, and that leads me to that, to postulate something like that, you see. Uh, but I'm not going to go to the stake for that, right? Uh, uh, so, anyway, when I'm, when I'm guessing, when I'm speculating, I'm going to tell you that, and I'm going to give you the basis for the speculation, and then we can agree to disagree in love and whether or not you think I'm right, or, or some other theological writer may say something different, or some other pastor. And there's plenty of room for disagreement on concepts like that. So uh, anyway, having kind of done a little bit of 
housekeeping that way. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get into the biblical teaching beginning in the Psalms. And I kind of kept these first set of scriptures just in the Psalms, so it would be less flipping around for you, because we have so many scriptures already. Uh, but let's pray, and then we'll jump in here. Holy Father, I do thank you so much for your grace and for your word. It is my prayer that through these studies that we're doing here, we can get a good overall perspective on the broad themes and the broad outworking of your plan of redemption as you have revealed it to us in scripture. We want, we want to understand what you intended and uh, help us to do that, Lord, and help us to and help me to be very careful to put a thus saith the Lord only on those things that are clearly stated in scripture and never to let anyone think that my own opinion or idea that I think is based on scripture is the same thing as scripture because it isn't. Your word is our ultimate authority. No man, certainly not this feeble-minded man. So I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to cling to the authority of your word, to accept those things that you clearly say, and to be careful about speculating about other things, to base those speculations on scripture. If we're drawing inferences, to show where we're getting them, and then allow your people to assess it biblically for themselves. Help us to be humble in doing this, all of us, Lord. Help us to listen to your word with humility and with love for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As I've already indicated, that the kingdom of God is not a fresh concept in the New Testament. Um, it's, I think a lot of Christians miss that for some reason. When they think of the Old Testament and they think of the kingdom, they think of the kingdom of Israel and Judah and the divided kingdom and the united kingdom, and they think of the kingdom in those terms. But they don't think of the kingdom of God in a broader sense, and, 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 not, as, and not so much as a spiritual kingdom either. Uh, but these ideas are, are in the Old Testament. Uh, they're not new when Jesus comes, right? And so I just want to give you just a few texts that show this kingdom concept in the Old Testament. And I'm going to focus in on the prophet David and some of his psalms. Uh, first of all, in Psalm 22, which was a messianic psalm, in verses 27 and 28 he writes, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is ruler over the nations. Um, that was a true statement about God's sovereign rule over all nations at the time David wrote. Of course, this being a messianic psalm, it also points to a future when there will be a time when everyone uh, will be calling God their king, their sovereign ruler. But this idea of a kingdom of God or a kingdom of the Lord was clearly in the mind of, of David who was writing as a prophet, not just a king, but as a prophet. Later on in Psalm 103, there beginning in verse 19, he writes, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. This is his way of saying as the king of a particular nation, the nation of Israel, right? But God isn't just the ruler of Israel. He's the ruler of everyone everywhere, of the whole universe, because he's God. And uh, so this kingdom concept, there's this broad idea of God as the sovereign king over everything that you find here. And then he says, bless the Lord you, his angels, thinking of his heavenly kingship, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you ministers of his, who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So what's the response? What should the response be of all things and all people everywhere? Well, this is what the response should be. Praising God as the king, because that's what he is. The universe is his kingdom, and he reigns over it. And he reigns even over those who reject his rule. But he reigns in a special way over those who trust in him and acknowledge him as their king. And so you see this idea of a spiritual kingdom, even in the Old Testament. Um, that being a part of that kingdom of Israel didn't make 
God, your true king in the spiritual sense, right? Because many of them rejected him and followed idols. Later on in Psalm 145, beginning in verse 10, he writes, All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom. So one of the things that God's, the saints, God's people, those who really trust in him, right? Believers are supposed to be doing, even under the old covenant, is speaking of God's kingdom. In a, in a world with all these different kingdoms then, just as now, there is really one king over everything, and, and it's believers who should be telling the world about that, right? They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. Only a powerful God could rule everything, right? Uh, to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Well, he's an everlasting God and of course then he has an everlasting kingdom. So it's clear from passages like that that in one sense the kingdom of God refers to God's sovereign rule over everything that exists in heaven and on earth but there's also a sense in which the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom that includes only believers. And as we'll see, it is in this sense that our Lord Jesus brought the kingdom of God to us in the present. Um, but before moving to the New Testament passages, uh, it's good to take a few moments to consider at least a couple of the key Old Testament messianic prophecies about a kingdom of God and a messianic king. Uh, first, there's this specific prophecy in the book of Isaiah that speaks of a coming messianic king. In Isaiah 9, uh, verses 6 and 7, there's this prophecy we usually remember around Christmas time, right? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David, and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with justice and ju judgment, excuse me, and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we have a, a prophecy of a, of a coming king who will reign on the throne of David forever. And of course, we know that was fulfilled by our Lord Jesus. But we see a sort of narrowing of this the, the kingdom of God is going to be centralized and focused on this messianic king who's going to become. This, we're going to see the reign of God in a special way, in a way we didn't see it in David, in his kingdom, for example. We'll see it in this coming messianic king. And he will become the focus. He will be the ultimate king. Prophet Daniel also foretells the coming of the messianic king in Daniel 7, for example. And uh, Jesus actually cited this text uh, himself in reference to himself. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. And by the way, if you wonder why Jesus' favorite designation for himself was Son of Man, this is why, right here. Every time he referred to himself as the Son of Man, he's alluding to this text. He's claiming to be the Messiah. Every time he says he's the Son of Man. Anyway, behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his is the kingdom which shall not be destroyed. Again, Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man over and over and over again. And if, we, and if you wonder about whether or not I'm right, just go read the passage that tells us about Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin and the high priest. And he alludes to this text. He says, you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He's alluding to this passage. So if we had any doubt that when he speaks of himself as the Son of Man, he had this text in mind, he kind of makes it clear himself. At any rate, as we shall see, the ultimate complete fulfillment of these prophecies is still future to us, although our Lord Jesus says the Messiah began the process of bringing them to fulfillment 
And we'll see that the fulfillment comes in two stages. So we turn our attention now to the New Testament. We're going to see that the Lord Jesus and his apostles could sometimes refer to the kingdom of God as a present reality, something that's already come. Well, at other times, they could refer to the kingdom as a future reality, as something that hasn't yet come. So there's a sense in which the kingdom is now and not yet. It's come in part now. It comes in its fullness in the future. The way I like to picture it often is that it's almost as though the future kingdom has reached back into the past and manifested itself now and is pulling us on to the future. It's implanted into us the hope of the resurrection and of the age to come and of the future kingdom for which we pray every day that God's kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're praying for, that the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom that we're experiencing in part now will come. And so... I want to show you how these things are really here in the New, New Testament. We'll start with the idea that the, that the Messianic kingdom has already come. It's here now. Jesus famously stressed that the kingdom of God was present when he said, for example, in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There he's speaking in the present tense, obviously. Or as Luke's account has it in Luke 6.20, Blessed are you, poor, are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And these are, by the way, two more texts that show us that kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are referring to the same thing, as we saw last week. The point is that we presently experience the reign of God in our lives through humble dependence upon him. That's what Jesus means when he says, Blessed are are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, he's saying that to a group of people, some of whom included Pharisees and scribes and so forth, that refused to believe that Jesus was the messianic king. So they didn't get to experience the kingdom as a present reality. Only those who are poor in spirit, only those who trusted in the Lord and therefore trusted in Jesus got to experience this present reality of the kingdom. At any rate, it's hard to miss Jesus' emphasis on it as a present reality. Later in Matthew 12, 28, of course, Jesus was challenged that if he, if he casted out demons, he was really doing it by the power of the, of the devil himself. And Jesus pointed out how ridiculous that was, right? But he also said this in Matthew 12, 28, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. What does he mean by that? Well, he's the Messiah, right? He's claiming to have brought the Messianic kingdom when he says this. But not in a way they expected it. In a way that they didn't expect. In this mysterious way, as a spiritual kingdom. And so they missed it, many of them but not those who were poor in spirit and not those who could see that when he cast out these demons, he was demonstrating that he really was the king. Uh, he really was the one who had the sovereign power to rule over everything. So God's reign is seen now through Jesus having conquered our spiritual enemies. Later, Paul described how Jesus also accomplished a great victory of the demonic powers through his death and resurrection. He, he says this in Colossians 2, 11 through 15. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, and having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So you see when you read the Gospels, all this resistance of Satan and the demonic forces against Jesus and against the apostles and against the kingdom of God coming in Jesus Christ. And you see that Jesus has power over them 
as he says in Matthew 12, 28, and as he demonstrates, and as his apostles demonstrated when they too, in the power of Jesus' name, cast out uh, demons and so forth. But Paul says, ultimately, in his death and resurrection, he won this stunning victory. <laughs> uh, he stopped them from doing what they, what they tried to do, which was stop him from bringing the kingdom in the way he intended. Of course, uh, Paul also reminded the Ephesian believers that we must put on the whole armor of God still, even though this great victory has happened, so that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, as he says in Ephesians 6, 11, and 12. So Jesus has wrought a victory, but that doesn't mean we don't still battle. It just means we can have victory in the battle through faith in Christ, who has demonstrated his power so completely over the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's why we don't fear them. We don't fear that they can separate us from Christ, for example. They can't. There is nothing they can do to us. Oh, they can attack us. They could probably do things like they did to Job, cause some disease or something like that. I don't know. Uh, spiritual warfare is still going on. They can do things like that. But they can't ultimately harm us any more than any other human being that we know attacks us can ultimately harm us. Because our true citizenship is in heaven. Our true king is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the ultimate authority. And nothing can happen that he doesn't allow because he's sovereign. So we're in this spiritual battle. But the very fact that we have victory in this spiritual battle is evidence of the fact that the kingdom is here. Right? The messianic kingdom is here and we're experiencing it through the victory that we can have every day over Satan and his minions. It's hard to miss the point uh, of Jesus' emphasis upon the kingdom as a present reality in his ministry. Uh, and we certainly receive his contention that it was demonstrated in his power over these demonic forces. And more than that, we have experienced that power in our own lives through salvation in Christ. Back to Jesus' ministry. Um, on one occasion, after he told a parable that's called the parable of the two sons, uh, he said this, in driving home the point of the parable in Matthew 21, 31, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. And Jesus said to them, and surely I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. They were challenging him, and Jesus told a parable, and he asked them uh, a question to drive home the point, and I'm avoiding getting into the parable right now because I'm trying to cover so much this morning. Um, but Jesus uses the present tense there when he says, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter. It's are entering the kingdom of God before. He's describing something that was happening then. They were really perturbed that so many tax collectors and harlots were, were believing in Jesus and their lives were being transformed. They didn't really like it. And so when Jesus says this to them, they're actually entering the kingdom right now before you. You're missing it. They're seeing it. That's the point. So the kingdom was present in the ministry of our Lord Jesus, and it's present now. Later in Luke 16, 16, He tells us that the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. In other words, John was the forerunner of Christ and when Christ began to preach the kingdom of God, as we saw last week, that's how his ministry was described, as preaching the kingdom of God. And when he began to preach the kingdom of God, he says people are Pressing into it here, there's different translations of this. It's a very difficult word that Jesus uses. But the point is, there are people that are eager to get into the kingdom. And they are entering the kingdom. Even now. 
And so it's a way of pointing out that what John was foretelling has co- was coming to pass in Jesus' ministry. The for- as a forerunner, he pointed to Jesus as the king, and Jesus says these people are, there are people now that are recognizing the kingdom of God as being preached in my preaching, and they're pressing into it, so to speak. I won't get into the difficulties of the various ways of taking that at this point. Let's just hang on to the fact that he talked about something that was already happening. The kingdom, there is not something off in the future. It's, it's something people were already experiencing. So regardless of the pri- precise meaning of that verb that's translated as pressing, as pressing into it in the New King James Version, it, it speaks of the present activity. If something was happening at that time, So it had to be a present reality at the time when Jesus spoke those words. Later in Luke 17, verses 20 and 21, we read uh, that when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor do they say, see here or see there. Now, why is he saying that before we get to the the crucial statement. Why is he saying that? They're expecting the kingdom to come in a really big, clear, powerful way that is obvious to everybody, right? But it didn't come like that. Well, except for those who have eyes to see, right? To them, it was very big and clear and powerful. But these these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and Herodians, they were missing the point. And so... Jesus is saying, you're asking when the kingdom is going to come, but if you want to hear the answer to the question, you're going to have to switch your assumptions here about the kind of kingdom you're expecting. That's why he says what he says. Uh, when, he, when he points out to them so clearly, the kingdom does not come with observation, or they say, see here or see there. For the ki-. Then he says, for indeed the kingdom of God, this is a bad translation in the New King James Version, is within you. That's clearly not true. The people he's talking about are rejecting the kingdom. (laughs) They can't be within them, right? Uh, That's not a good translation. It doesn't even make sense in the context, in my point of view. I think it's much better to take it as the ESV does um, this way. For indeed, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, or is in your midst, as the New American Standard has it. That's a much better way of taking this here. Um, The point that Jesus is making is, you're asking when it's going to come. The reason you're not seeing it is because you're looking for the wrong kind of thing. Uh, If you could see clearly, you'd see it's already here. That's the point of what he's saying. If you you could get rid of, of these assumptions and listen to me and what I'm telling you, you would see it's already here. I think that the ESV study Bible notes are really helpful when they deal with this verse. Uh, they say that the Pharisees re- repeat their mistake that uh, was spoken of in chapter 14, verse 15, uh, when they were missing that the kingdom was here, in not recognizing that the kingdom of God has already come. It is in the midst of you, in the person of Jesus, and in the reign of God manifested in those who are already following Jesus. Some understand Jesus to say here that the kingdom is within you, but he would not say that to disbelieving Pharisees. That's true. He would not. (laughs) Uh, But the the nature of of the kingdom is already here is Jesus' point. See, they were looking for everything to happen at once. And it came in these two stages. First the spiritual kingdom and then the ultimate fulfillment in the future. And they just did not want to hear that. The nature of the presence of the kingdom has already come is also evident in the teaching of the Apostle Paul. For example, in Romans 14, verses 16 through 18, he writes this, do not, or Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. The this makes no sense what he's saying if the, if the people he's speaking to aren't already part of the kingdom. And he uses the present tense once again. The kingdom of God 
is not eating and drinking. Um, right now, don't argue about those things in the way you're arguing about them in the context. Um, the kingdom of God is, is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So Paul definitely sees the kingdom of God as a present reality in this passage. As I said, he uses the present tense, but he also speaks of the fruit of the Spirit that Christians are said to experience now. Right? Things like righteousness and joy and peace. Look at Galatians 5, 22 and 23 at the root of the Spirit. You'll see some similarities there, right? And it's also the fact that Paul's concerned about the present testimony of believers, about the true nature of the kingdom of God. Paul's concerned that as they are witness to those around them, people get an idea of what the kingdom of God really is about instead of get the wrong impression about what it's about. He wants them to know that the kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. These things come only through faith in Christ and the power of the Spirit. Later on in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 and 25, and I'm, I'm moving through this pretty quickly because I gave you a handout with all the with all the references. So if you just want to listen and then read them later, that's fine too. But in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 and 25, Paul speaks of when the end will come. He says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father and he puts an end to all rule and all authority and, and power, obviously accepting his own, right? Um, For he must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. So Jesus is clearly seen in this text to be reigning over a kingdom now. It's the kingdom he's going to deliver to the Father, it says. You can't deliver a kingdom you don't have. And therefore he has one, and he has it now, right? It's obvious it's a present kingdom. And what is this kingdom over which he reigns? Well, although we know he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, as we're told in Matthew 28, 18, his reign is most powerfully seen in the church. That's the assumption Paul made in the Romans passage. And through the spread of the gospel, and that's the intent of the Great Commission, that's the way the kingdom spreads in this world. As we saw last week, remember, preaching the gospel is also preaching the kingdom. And so, how is Jesus' kingdom seen? Now, what's most powerfully seen in the church as the church faithfully proclaims the gospel, as the church disciples the nations, teaches the things of God as they are in Jesus to a lost and dying world. That's how we see the kingdom now. In Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul says that God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. We're in the kingdom now, clearly. If we had any doubts up to this point, which we shouldn't, it's really clear here. And he says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. How do you get into the kingdom now? Where you're born again. Through faith in Christ, you receive redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. And here the kingdom is, is referred to as the kingdom of the son of his love. But given the other passages that we've already looked at last week and this morning, it's pretty clear from the teaching of both Jesus and the apostles that the kingdom of the son of his love is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven that's here now. It's just one more way of referring to it. So the kingdom is here now, but there are also texts that say the kingdom isn't here yet. <laughs> and some people see this as uh, a big contradiction in the scriptures, but it isn't if you recognize that the scriptures are obviously talking about the kingdom in two different senses. It's talking in the passages that we've looked at already as the kingdom of God having come as a spiritual kingdom manifested in the church. But the kingdom of God that's going to come in the future is going to be God's reign come to earth, right? Uh, the new heavens and the new earth ultimately is what we're going to discover, especially as we move into passages about this age and the age to come. And, but here's some passages that describe the kingdom as not yet here. 
both now and not yet. Jesus famously stressed the kingdom of God as a future reality when he taught his disciples to pray this way. In Matthew 6.10, he taught them to pray. Therefore, he teaches us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You don't pray for something to come that's already here. But we, but we also know that Jesus made it clear, in fact, in the same Sermon on the Mount, we read one of the Beatitudes earlier in chapter 5 of Matthew about the kingdom as a present reality and that those blessed are the poor in spirit for this is the kingdom, right? But then he goes on to say, pray for the kingdom to come. So in the mind of Jesus, there's a sense in which the kingdom is here already, but a sense in which the kingdom has not yet come. And I would argue that has it not yet come in its fullness. And you see this same now, not yet tension in other doctrines in Scripture. I'll just use one example. The doctrine of adoption. Scripture can say we have received the spirit of adoption. We're God's adopted children now. But then Paul can speak in Romans 8 of adoption as something future when the resurrection happens. How can he do that? Well, we're adopted children of God now, but we haven't yet fully received all that that means. That comes in the resurrection. When we are perfect, perfected forever, right? And we're fully saved. And so that is similar to the way the kingdom is here now, but not yet in all of its fullness. And you could look at other doctrines. You see this in the language about salvation and about sanctification in the New Testament. This tension, this now not yet tension, that we're, we're people that kind of live between two worlds. We have one foot planted in the here and now and the other foot planted in the future. We're kingdom, we're kingdom citizens. We're citizens of that future kingdom already in the here and now. Moving along here, uh, we see other passages that indicate that the full realization of God's kingdom is something that awaits the future, something that Jesus says we're to pray for daily. And we see in that prayer that it involves God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. That, that tells us that when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, what will it be like? God's will will be done on earth the same way it's done in heaven. Well, how's his will done in heaven? Anybody in heaven disobeying God ever? Anybody in heaven pulling a Jonah and saying, well, I'll obey on my terms or maybe later? No, uh, in heaven, God's will is obeyed instantly, always, in perfect holiness and righteousness, right? Jesus says we're to pray for the kingdom to come, and that's praying that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, that's what the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom will look like. It's happening in part now in the church as we obey God. But even we're not doing it perfectly now. We'll do it perfectly in the future, in the resurrection. So we're, we're doing it now, but not yet. <laughs> not yet the way we should be. And that concept is built into Jesus' prayer that he tells us to pray every day if you stop and think about it. And then if you keep in mind these other passages we're going to look at as well. For example, later in Matthew 7, and I'll move through these pretty quickly, verses 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, he's, he's got something in the future. He's got the future judgment in mind here. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, there you see this focus on the will of God again, many will say to me in that day, which is a way of referring to the future day of the Lord or day of judgment. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. One of the two scariest passages in all the Bible, in my opinion, that there could be people on the judgment day thinking they're real when they're fake. Isn't that frightening? <laughs> We don't have to fear that that will happen to us, however, because we're not going to be pointing to what they're trying to point to. 
Notice what they say. Look at what I did. Look at what I did. Look at what I did. What are we going to be saying? Look what you did for me, Jesus. There's a big difference between those two people. Uh, we'll be there on Judgment Day saying we don't deserve to be here, but by the grace of God, and the only reason we're here is because you, Lord Jesus, you saved us. It's all by your grace. We're not going to be saying, yeah, but I did this and I did that. I fooled a lot of people. I made them think I, I was so self-deceived, I thought I was real. Thank God we know we're not going to be among those people. Therefore, this really frightening text doesn't really have to scare us. In Mark 14, verses 23 to 25, we read that Jesus took the cup and when he gave him thanks, this is the Lord's Supper, gave it to them and they all drank from it and he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it that day or until that day, rather, when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now that's looking to the future. That sees the kingdom as the future. And the disciples weren't so daft that they would get, when they look back on this, confused. Oh, well, there's a sense in which the kingdom is here now, but not yet. It's not fully come. It comes in its fullness in the future. In 1 Corinthians 15, a passage we read from earlier, verse 50, Paul says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Now, there he's got the future resurrection in mind. What we saw earlier in verses 24 and 25 of that passage, Jesus is reigning over a kingdom now that he's going to give to the Father in the future. Right? So the kingdom's here now, but Paul still sees it as something future in the same passage. That's because what we, see, what we experience now is only a foretaste of what's to come in its fullness. 2 Timothy 4.18 says this, And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. Tim be glory forever and ever. Amen. Or how about 2 Peter 1.10 and 11? Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's talking to people who are part of God's kingdom, who have been translated, uh, transferred into the kingdom of the Son of His love about an abundant entrance into the kingdom of God in the future. What he's saying is, you can be sure that what you're experiencing in part now, you will experience in its fullness in the future. That's the idea. So these types of passages that we've looked at this morning make it clear that there's a sense in which the kingdom of God is a present reality and also a future reality. And we've gotten some idea of what the difference between the two might mean. I think George Eldon Ladd, in, in a uh, quote I've given to you, in his important little book entitled Crucial Questions About the Kingdom of God, I think he supper, summarizes the evidence nicely. And those of you who don't know... Um, George Eldon Ladd was a very prominent biblical scholar in the latter part of the, the mid to late 20th century now. Um, and he was probably the main scholar who did the most to bring back the idea of, of the, what we call historic premillennialism. It's called that because uh, the best indications are, if you read the writings of the early fathers, that the predominant view in the early church, the predominant eschatological view, was premillennialism, that Jesus would come back before, pre, a millennial kingdom that he would have on this earth, and, but it held to a post-tribulation rapture. And that's historic premillennialism. It happens to be my own point of view. But he, but he did a lot of really good work on this idea of the kingdom of God in his writings. And, and in his New Testament theology, there's a lot of good work on that as well. Anyway, he, he writes this in this book, Crucial Questions About the Kingdom of God. As the Messiahship of Christ involved two phases, a coming in humility to suffer and die, and a coming in power and glory to reign, so the kingdom is to be manifested in two realms, the present realm of righteousness or salvation when men may accept or reject the kingdom, and the future realm when the powers of the kingdom shall be manifested in visible glory. The former was inaugurated in insignificant beginnings without outward display, 
Remember, Jesus said, you're looking for a see here or a look there kind of thing, right? Uh, and he says, and those who accept it are to live intermingled with those who reject it until the cons consummation. Then the kingdom will be disclosed in a mighty manifestation of power and glory. God's kingdom will come, and the ultimate state will witness the perfect realization of the will of God everywhere and forever. I, I think we've seen that that is indeed the biblical perspective. It's, it's why Paul can say, for example, in Philippians 3.20, that our citizenship is in heaven. From which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We're already citizens of heaven now. The kingdom's already here. The heavenly kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. We're already in it. But we won't experience all that that means yet. Not till Jesus comes back. So as I said before, it's, it's like to me, the future kingdom is, it's like there's this heavenly tractor beam, if you're a Trekkie or sci-fi fan, right? Where a ship can put out a tractor beam and latch onto a ship and draw it in, right? It's like there's this heavenly tractor beam from the future that's been beamed back into our present and the last hold of us Firmly planting us into the kingdom of God, and it's drawing us to the future. And it won't let us go, because it's God's grip on us. And we're citizens of that kingdom right now, and that's forever. You don't lose that citizenship. Peter then can describe us, using language actually from the Old Testament, as sojourners and pilgrims on this earth in passages like 1 Peter 2, 11. We're strangers on this earth. We're, we're just passing through this, this earthly country, as the author of Hebrews will say. We'll look at this text next week. We're looking like, like the saints of old, like Abraham did, for a heavenly city, a heavenly country. We're really citizens of that country, Passing through this one, this earthly country. That's the idea when Peter uses that terminology. So when I say the kingdom is here now and we don't yet experience it in its fullness to the future, I also want to indicate that built into all of this thinking is the certainty of that future experience. If you're in the kingdom now, you're in the kingdom forever. And you will be a part of that heavenly kingdom. And you must view yourselves already as citizens of it who are simply strangers and pilgrims on this earth passing through. And that this place is not really your home. It's good to think of that, particularly in the current political climate, isn't it? I'm a very patriotic American citizen. I took an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America from all enemies, foreign and domestic. And I actually believe I'm still bound by that oath. And I take that seriously. But that's a way distant second to my heavenly citizenship. That's my first priority. And that should be all of our first priority. When Paul said that to the believers in Philippi, in Philippians 3.20, it's interesting that that was a, a city that was mostly made up of Roman citizens. And it was important for Paul to remind them, as important as Roman citizenship is, the citizenship that matters is that you're citizens of heaven. And don't forget that. And I think if he were here now, he'd say, as important as it is to be citizens of the United States of America, the citizenship that matters is that you are citizens of the kingdom of God. And that's always first. That should always be your first allegiance. And we shouldn't forget that. Wow. And I don't think that makes us worse citizens of our earthly country. I think it makes us better ones. Because we know what to pray for, for our country. We, we know how to act. We know what to long for. We know how true, real transformation will come if it's ever going to come. It will come through the preaching of the kingdom. Through the gospel changing hearts. 
And that's the only way everlasting change will ever come for anyone. So there are, there are implications to what I'm saying for us here that we need to take very seriously. I certainly hope that I take them seriously. With that, let's pray and close out our teaching for today. Holy Father, uh, I've, hit, I've hit us with a lot here today and last week, and for many of us, this might just be a refresher and hopefully a good one. For some of us, these concepts are new. Um, I do believe that what I've done is faithful to your word, is a faithful presentation of, of your word and how to fit it together properly, to interpret scripture by scripture, remembering that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible, and to look at the whole of scripture to get the proper view that we should have of the, how your plan of redemption is to be working out or is being worked out. Lord, for those of us who know you and are already citizens of this heavenly kingdom, on behalf of us all, I say thank you so much for your grace because we know in the words of our Lord Jesus to Nicodemus that we cannot see or enter the kingdom unless we've been born of God, born of the Spirit, unless you regenerated us and gave us eyes to see. We could never see the kingdom, let alone enter it. It's all by your grace and the work of your spirit in our hearts. And we thank you for that. Help us never to forget that our first loyalty is to you as the sovereign ruler of the universe, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has given all authority in heaven and on earth. And that our citizenship is in heaven. And we are just strangers on this world, passing through, looking for our, our ultimate home. And for those who have not yet come to know you, we pray that today he or she would receive the gospel message that Jesus Christ really is the Messiah. He really did come to bring the kingdom of God to earth in this special way and that we can enter that kingdom by faith in Jesus as the one who died on the cross for our sins, who rose from the dead that we might have everlasting life. That if we trust in him and what he's done for us, relinquishing any trust in ourselves, we will experience the powers of the age to come in the here and now. We will know what it is to be your adopted children and to be in your kingdom. Lord, we'll give you all the glory for what you do in answer to these prayers. Completely aware of the fact that you and you alone deserve all the glory. We pray these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As always, I thank you for your kind attention. You are good hearers of the word.